What a great, beautiful Saturday morning. Uh, good to be together. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll begin. This morning, we're looking at um, John chapter 6 and bread. So let's just take a moment, turn our hearts to Christ. Father, I want to thank you that we can gather within these walls. Thank you for um, the testimony of creation that's all around us this morning. Every, every one of our senses encounters you. Thank you for the scent of redwood. It's, for me, incredible. Lord, a reminder of many, many good things. Thank you for that. Thank you for the coffee. Thank you for the, the sleep. Thank you for the fellowship with men. Thank you for the, the, the music and the vocal cords. Thank you for the food. And now thank you for the food of your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that you shape us so that we could scatter from here tomorrow as people better able to represent your heart to our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, so remember last night, uh, theme elemental, elements we're looking at, wine, last night, a capacity to bless, and we saw how we gain that capacity out of our, the brokenness of our story, so our brokenness isn't something to be afraid of. God uses our brokenness to bring us to a point of transformation. We want to lean into that. And then, and then this morning, we're looking at the theme of bread as a source of satisfaction and a source of contentment. And so we're going to go there. Uh, I'll give you the outline now. We'll go to the next slide. And this is really all we're looking at this morning, but this theme of bread uh, and the reality of hunger, the reality of provision, the reality of confusion, uh, that's kind of where our outline's going, though I'm going to take you in a slightly, I'll give you some different words for that as we, as we unfold here uh, this morning. So... We actually begin by going back to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 26, because, you know, I teach about the reality of the indwelling Christ all over, all over the world, really, and when I talk about how glorious it is to have Christ living in you and how freeing that is and how that's a source of contentment and satisfaction, people say to me often, yeah, but how do I do that? How do I, how do I live into that reality? And it all starts with motivation, and motivation starts with hunger. Proverbs 16, 26 says this, a worker's appetite works for him, his hunger urges him on. Now, this is very practical. I'm just going to ask a question here, ask for a show of hands. Who in the room has ever had a morning where you wake up and you didn't want to go to work, but you went anyway? Just raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Look how shocking. Look around the room. I mean, every hand is raised. Like, this is just the way it is, right? I'm hungry, so I go to work. Because I don't go to work. If you don't, remember what Paul says? If you don't work, what? You don't, you don't eat. Wow. Christian life, incredibly practical, right? Get a job, I used to say to my kids. Now, in, um, this, this principle, though, is more than practical, there's, a, there's another layer to the principle. God uses the hungers of our hearts to motivate us to come to Christ. So we want to learn how to lean into our hungers. And the best story that articulates that is back in Genesis. So if you go back to Genesis, you see there's 12 sons of one guy, J uh, Jacob, and these 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're calling. Like, like this is God's vocation for them. God says these 12, 3, 5, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So there they are, the 12 tribes of Israel. Right there, boom. 
And God says, now here's what I want you to do. Uh, you guys are charged with raising up a nation that will represent all of my values, my justice, my mercy, my generosity, my peace, my wisdom. It's on you. Go for it. How'd they do, by the way? Stinking disaster, these 12 guys over here, right? I mean, if you, like, if you, if you go back and you read the story, uh, very, like, they're, are they chosen? Totally. We're, we're chosen, we're called, love God, and then there's petty jealousy among the brothers, right? Joseph has the favorite robe, and then Judah, you know, sells him as a slave, and then Judah sleeps with his, with his daughter-in-law and impregnates her. He didn't think it was his daughter-in-law. He thought it was a prostitute, but that doesn't make it okay. And then, and then, and then uh, the, 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 the tribes, uh, the brothers, they conspired together. All of them really conspired together to slaughter the Shechemites after they'd raped uh, their sister, Dinah. And so you have, you have vengeance, deceit, jealousy, anger, uh, all, all, this, all this pettiness among, like, God's chosen family, right? So how does God transform them? He doesn't send them to Sunday school. He doesn't call a revival meeting. Uh, what happens is there's a famine. And in Genesis chapter 41, verse 56, these brothers are out of food. They're out of food. So God says to uh, the, the sons, hey, why are you staring at one another? Go get some food. And when they go to get some food... Turns out that the guy who's doling out food is the son that they sold as a slave some 25 years ago. And now he's, he's like the, the economic advisor to the pharaoh in Egypt. And, and God uses that situation to bring about the transformation of the brothers. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We're not looking at it this morning. But what you see is uh, Judah. This is Judah right here in the very front. Judah says... Judah says, look, uh, he says, no, you're Judah, because Judah's the older brother, right? That's just the way it's going to be. So Judah says, hey, uh, I'm going to take Benjamin, the other favored son of the dad, right? I'm going to take Benjamin down there, hold me responsible if I don't bring him back. And then, and then the plot thickens, because what happens is uh, Joseph plants his special cup in Benjamin's backpack when they go get the food. And as they're leaving, Joseph sends the kind of, you know, pharaoh police after the 12. They come, they pull them over with their camels. Hey, who stole the cup, right? Who stole the cup? And then Judah says, hey, whoever stole the cup, um, you know, go ahead and kill him. And then, and then uh, uh, Joseph says, no, I'm not going to kill who stole the cup. He's going to stay and be my slave forever. And then, uh, remember what happens? Everybody dumps their backpacks out, begin with the oldest, of course. So it's pretty kind of profound because uh, they think they're innocent. And then the last guy, Benjamin, opens his backpack and the cup rolls out. And all the brothers <clears throat> tear their clothes. That, that, listen, this is a sign if you're paying attention, that the brothers are being transformed. Why? Well, how, how did the bro what was the brother's attitude toward the other favored son, whose name was Joseph? It, sa it says in Genesis 38, they hated him. And then when Joseph, lacking emotional intelligence, came and said, hey, guys, I had some dreams. You want to hear these cool dreams? You were all bowing down to me. It says, then it says, they hated him even more. And then he says, oh, I had another dream. 
the moon and the sun and the stars were all bowing down to me. Isn't that cool? And they hated him even more, right? Enough to sell him as a slave. So if they hated him and then uh, Jacob, the dad, now is pointing out all that same favoritism on Benjamin, and now Benjamin's going to be taken as a slave, it's like problem solved, right? Got rid of the other prissy brother, okay? But instead, like they tear their clothes and they go back and then Judah, this is what Judah does. Judah says, hey, listen, I said, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, I said to dad, I'd be responsible for Benjamin. And if I go home without him, my dad is gonna die immediately of grief. So I'm gonna make a, I have a proposal. They say this to Judah. They don't know it's their own brother they're talking to, but they say this to Judah. I mean, you can't even, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's amazing, right? Benjamin says, excuse me, uh, Judah says, let me remain as the slave so that Benjamin can go free. Now, what is that called? The gospel. Hey, remember this? By this, all men will know you're my disciples, in that you what? Can defend your doctrinal statement with perfect integrity and beat everybody up like the Christian life is an intellectual chess match. No, 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 no. By this, all men will you know my disciples, right? That you, that, you, that you uphold inerrancy as the most important thing, or six-day earth as the most important thing. No, no, no. Here's, look, this is the proving ground. Here's how people will know, in that you love one another. Oh, and by the way, greater love has no man than this, than that he what? Lay down his life for his friend. So suddenly, Judah looks just like who? Jesus. I mean, we sang it last night. Lion of Judah. What a wacky song. Judah, who hated his brother, sold him as a slave, slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute and impregnated her, and then wanted to have her killed when he found out she was pregnant because he didn't know he was the father. Oh, by the way, <laughs> that baby became uh, the line of Christ. What is God trying to say to us through all of this? Here's the deal. We are transformed because we're hungry. And if we're not hungry, we're not transformed. And the reason this is really, really important is because a typical response of evangelicals is to demonize our appetites. Like, we're typically told, hey, just like pretend, like, pretend you don't have any desires for anything other than Jesus. And that, that's, a, that's a vast mistake. Here's why. Whatever is the desires that we have are actually desires for Jesus gone wrong. And so what God wants to do is take the very desires that you have and use those desires to point you to Christ as the supreme source of satisfaction. So, so uh, I have this friend, and she put, uh, her parents, when she was a, a child, uh, they, they made her put Philippians 3.19 on the refrigerator door, which says, beware of those whose God is their stomach. And it, it, it's not funny, because she developed a life-threatening eating disorder, right? By, by learning to hate her body and hate her appetites. And I heard her say, uh, look, do we all in the room have sexual longings? Yeah, we have sexual longings. Do we want intimacy? Yeah. Do we want financial security? To yeah, totally. Do we want meaning? Yeah. Great. Let's see how God can use our desires to point us to Christ rather than trying to pretend that we don't have desires. 
by putting on a veil of religion. So we're going to do that by looking at this story this morning, uh, the fee of 5,000. And so the first thing I want to see here, uh, uh, the outline is different than what you see here, but these things are, these things are embedded in here. But here's the, th- here's the first thing I want you to see. There's, this, there's, a, there's a point counterpoint that goes on between Jesus and the people in this story. So here's what we're going to see. First, we're going to see Christ able to deliver. Second, the people wanting deliverance without a deliverer. Third, Christ, the source of satisfaction. So here's the first thing we see. Christ is able to deliver. The story is in John chapter 6. You know it already, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to paraphrase it a little bit, but this is the deal. Uh, uh, Jesus is teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching, and it gets late, and the, and the Passover is near, and so Jesus, uh, he sees this crowd of 5,000 coming to him, and so he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread? They're out in the middle of nowhere. And Philip says, look, even 200 denarii worth of bread isn't going to be enough for everybody to receive even a bite. If we had 200 days' wages, we couldn't afford to feed everybody. Oh, but there's this one guy. He has five loaves, two fish. But what's this for so many people? Jesus says, have the people sit down. They, so they sit down. There's 5,000 men, probably women and children as well. Jesus takes the, the, the five loaves and two fish and he begins to break, and you know the story. He breaks, he breaks, he breaks, he breaks, he breaks. Everybody eats, and there's leftovers. So like Jesus, right? It's like not just enough, but abundant. And then people say, verse 14, ah, this is the prophet who's coming to the world. So everyone's all in now. Why? Because I was hungry, and you fed me. Boom. Now, I just want to stop here and talk about this. is a very important principle embedded in here. And what's the principle? Jesus meets physical needs. Jesus meets needs. That's what he does. Why does that matter? Because uh, when we gather here this morning, we don't gather just as Christ's followers. We are right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. We're the literal, visible presence of Christ on the earth today. So if Jesus meets needs, and we are the body of Christ, then what's our calling? This is not hard. What's our calling? We, we mean needs. Because that's what it means to follow Christ. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 12, hey, I'm going away, but because I'm going away, you'll do greater works than I ever did. What a confounding statement. Like what's greater than anything that Jesus did? Here's what Jesus meant. Jesus in his humanity was confined to a particular time and space. If I'm in Jerusalem, I'm not in Samaria. If I'm in Samaria, I'm not at the Sea of Galilee. If I'm at the Sea of Galilee, I'm not down in Egypt. But where is Jesus gathered this morning? Santa Cruz, Seattle, San Diego, Eugene, Oregon, Mississippi, Stanford campus, University of Washington, South Africa, Tasmania, Nepal, Tibet, Bhutan, Rwanda, Uganda, Mozambique. Where's Christ? Christ is everywhere. And what, by the way, what is Christ doing everywhere? You know, healing, feeding, freeing women from human trafficking. That's what Jesus is doing. And so we, as the body of Christ, have not only the privilege, but the calling to make Christ visible. This is why the prophet Micah said it this way. uh, Hey, what does the Lord require of you? 
And there's really only three things. Like if you could, if you could take the, the complexity of the gospel and you kind of boil it down to a, like if we were at cooking classes, where we call it a reduction, right? You take all the, let, it, let the steam leave, and what do you have left? Like what do you have left when it's just the essence of the gospel? What does the Lord require you of, of, of me? And, and this is what God says in Micah 6, 8. And this, by the way, is this book in the back, The Colors of Hope. It's, it's back in the book show. What does God require of you? Three things. Do justice, love mercy, walk with God. It's that simple. Like if we do that, good things happen. And I want to tell you, this has not always been the, 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 the church's shining moment. Like we're, we have failed at doing justice. We failed at being people of mercy. And many of us, particularly in the evangelical tradition, have focused solely on walking with God. And it's inadequate. I was heading to Bangkok, or excuse me, heading to India years ago uh, to teach uh, Genesis. And in order to teach Genesis, I'd studied up on the debate about the age of the earth, right? And so I was, I was pretty conversant on theistic evolution and intelligent design and six-day creationism and young earth. And I read up, and when you read up, you find that people are lobbing grenades at each other about, about this. And there's a big, you know, debate about what's the, what's the way with a big capital T-H-E definite article, 100 point, you know, font. The way. This is, this is it. And we argue about this stuff like it matters. And so, like, I, I've, I've done my homework, and then I'm on my way to India, and I have a flight delay, and I'm stuck in Bangkok. So when I'm stuck in Bangkok, I pull a, the name of a hotel out of a, out of a little kiosk thing at the door, and I'm told by the travel agent, just give it to a cab driver. He'll take you to that motel. So I hand this thing to the cab driver, and uh, he says, oh, this is a good motel, but I know a cheaper one. And I'm, at the time, uh, you know, running a tiny little ministry making next to nothing, and so my ears perk up. Oh, cheaper. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, he says, oh, and it's way better anyway, you know. And so I'm, I'm like, I'm all in. <laughs> he does this U-turn. And we go way out of the outskirts of Bangkok. And he pulls into this dirt field where there's a bar and a place called the Nice Palace with <laughs> blinking lights. Nice Palace, Nice Palace, Nice Palace. And, and you go in and there's, you know, there's carpeting in the, in, the, in the lobby. You put your credit card down and then the bellboy comes and he picks up your backpack and then you walk up the stairs and immediately when you leave the lobby, uh, the, the walls are concrete, the floor is concrete, the doors are steel and you feel like you're in a prison. And then, and then the bell guy, he takes me to my room and he opens the door and he says, look, clean sheets. And he's trying to boast about how awesome this place is. Clean sheets. You know, the air conditioning uh, is always on, so if you get cold, turn it off, because it doesn't have a thermostat, and uh, the water, you get hot water starting at 6 in the morning, blah, 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 blah. And then, this is what he says. I mean, by the way, I paid 20 bucks for the room. This is what he says. When do you want the girl? Now, I'm naive, right? I didn't even, I, I didn't even think I heard him right. I was like, the grill? Is there a barbecue tonight that I don't know about? Like, I'm all in if there's a barbecue. He says, no, not the grill, the girl. When do you want the girl? You get a girl with a room. I pull out my wallet. This is like pre-cell phone days. Look, wife, three kids, happily married. And he's like, she's beautiful. When do you want the girl? I said, I don't want the girl. And then uh, he pesters me a little more. And I said, look, let me be clear. I don't want anyone coming in this room. And he gets mad at me, 
And this is what he says. It's still $20. He's wagging his finger. Still $20. He leaves. And I'm, sta- I'm, I'm literally, I'm standing down. And I'll never forget. I'm standing. I sit on the bed. As soon as I sit on the bed, I get sick to my stomach. I'm like, I know what's going on all around here. And within five minutes, I said, I'm, I'm out of here. I, didn't, I never even took anything out of my pack. Put my pack back on. I'm walking down the hall, and I, I see a girl. Dressed for work. Probably 14. I went back to the airport. I slept on the, on the floor in the airport in Bangkok. And I began doing a little research, and I come to discover that this is a thing, human trafficking. I didn't know that, that she was probably sold by her family uh, who couldn't afford to keep her. And uh, that once she's purchased... Uh, her owners make all the money that she's a slave and that she'll be discarded uh, when she's 22, 23 years old because she'll be too old for work and she'll be illiterate and she'll probably die by the age of 30. And that she's not alone, that there are thousands if not millions around the world caught in this kind of human trafficking. And then I, I get on a plane and I'm flying to India and I'm like, Wait a minute, why am I talking about the age of the earth again? When, when, when the gospel says this, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. I don't get it. And what's happened today, to be, if I can speak frankly, the evangelical church has bifurcated, polarized often into people who are all about walking humbly with God but have no regard for racism, systemic racism in America, no regard for violence, no regard for the idols of materialism and individualism and nationalism, no regard for violence. And so we're all about getting our, our, our hands stamped uh, so that we can go to heaven and be with Jesus and we're told, you know, pray more, give more, serve more, but we're never challenged to be people who are meeting the needs of those who are hungry, like oppressed people hungry for freedom, right? People who are in chains, hungry for freedom. People who are poor, hungry for community. People who are alone, hungry for companionship. People who are addicted, hungry for transformation. We're, we're not doing it. And we have to, because it's our calling. And then there's another group in reaction to that pietist group who is all about the environment and racism and systemic violence, but has lost sight of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, and so they're no longer walking with Jesus. There's people wanting the king without the kingdom, and there's people wanting the kingdom without the king. And you can't have it that way. In in Matthew 7, Jesus judges the left. Because here's what happens in Matthew 7. Jesus says, hey, many will say to me on that day, hey, look, Jesus, look what we did in your name. We did cool stuff, man. We healed. We cast out demons. Let's just extrapolate. We worked to end human trafficking. We we, we changed the gun laws. We, We addressed global warming. We started a homeless shelter. We started a food bank. Look what we did. And what did Jesus say? He says, hey, get out of here. I never knew you. Like you tried to impose the values of the kingdom without relationship with the king. You can't do that. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus judges the right. Because in Matthew 25, this is what Jesus says. He says, hey, welcome. Get in here. 
I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And then they'll say, when, like, when did we do that? Well, if you've done it to anyone, you've done it to me. And then to another group, he'll say, get out of here. I was hungry and you didn't visit me. And, and, and I was in prison and you didn't care. And they'll say, Lord, when were you in prison? And, and this is what Jesus says. If you neglect the least of these, you're neglecting me. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. You cannot have the king without the kingdom. And until we learn that, we misrepresent the gospel. And I got to tell you, it fries me that we misrepresent the gospel because most people who are rejecting Jesus in America are not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the cultural caricature that we've created. A, a, a pietist Jesus who has no regard for systemic racism and violence or a social justice Jesus that doesn't call people to intimacy and contentment. Neither work. We need the king and the kingdom. And that's our calling. So we are the body of Christ. We now meet needs. But then, here's what happens. If that's the first point, the counterpoint, the people, is they're all in now, but what they really want is deliverance without the deliverer. And here's how we know. Because Jesus feeds them, and then he, he perceives that they want to make him king, so he leaves, and he, he goes across the, across the sea, and then by the time we get to verse 30, we realize, excuse me, excuse me verse 24, uh, when the crowd saw that Jesus was on the other side, they all got in little boats and they came. So they follow, Jesus tries to get away and they follow him. And then in verse 26, Jesus says, this is so like counterintuitive, man. Uh, I mean, if you're a leader, right? Like everybody, like he's got, he's got his brand. He's got his market share. Like, if, if he had an Instagram account, it'd be blowing up right now. Like, this feeding of 5,000, it would go viral. Do you understand? And, but Jesus, rather than saying, now that I've got you all here, let me lay it on you, this is what he says. Hey, uh, you're here, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set a seal. Whoa. So what, here's what's going on here. <laughs> he, he's saying, yeah, you're here, but you're here for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and, and so, you know, in healthy families, we care for our kids but what we hope is that our kids don't just view us as a storehouse of material provision. Does that make sense? In other words, you know, when I take, when, I, uh, when my kids were younger, I'd take them to, you know, football games and baseball games and stuff like that. And so, you know, we, we'd go to the Mariners. And uh, my son would come to me and he'd say, Dad, I want some... Dipping Dots, which is this stupid <laughs> ice cream that looks like styrofoam, right? And he'd hold out his hand, and it was like, this is what he knew. You're, I'm like, you're my dad, and I'm four, so I don't have a job. And so the way it works is you, like, you'll give me some money, and I'll go buy some ice cream, right? And my daughter would come, and she'd want something, and then my other daughter would come, and it's like, 
you know, there you go. But, but it's okay as long as uh, that's not all I am to them. Does that make sense? In other words, why am I giving you the dipping dots? Not for your health, that's for sure. You know, the reason I'm giving you the dipping dots is because I want you to know that you can come to me for anything, right? So dipping dots and, and other inane gifts, you know, down through the ages lead to a conversation at one point with my son. We're skiing one day and he's, he's 24 and, you know how we are with our sons. We want to always have, at least I do, I want to have these profound conversations. But when it's your son, like, they kind of make the rules. Like, we're the visiting team, so to speak. And, and, and so, like, we're on the lift and we're talking about, the, you know, the powder and the runs and the skiing and the this and the that. And then we get in the car and we're driving home and we get halfway home. So it's like... We've been all day not talking about anything substantial. And then my son is like this. Hey, Dad, uh, how, did, how did you know when it was time to marry Mom? I go, hey, good question. Why do you ask? He says, well, I have this girlfriend, and I'm either going to break up with her or marry her, and I don't know which to do. <laughs> like, and he's like, how do you know? And, and don't even worry about my answer right now. Here's the point. Here's the point. I'm convinced that there's a line between the dipping dots and that question. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you, I mean, do you really, do you understand? Like, I have to invest in meeting his needs when he's four so that when he's 24, he still knows he can come to me. This is practical stuff for us, but this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, I gave you the dipping dots so that you would want to be in relationship with me, but you don't want to be in relationship with me. You just want more and more dipping dots. And that's, that's just not going to work, right? Because then Jesus goes on and he says, listen, what you really need isn't bread. What you really need is me. Because this is like point three here. Jesus now says, I'm the source of satisfaction. So Jesus meets the need. Then the people want deliverance without a deliverer. Then Jesus says, hey, turn to me. I'm the source of satisfaction. And this is how he says it. John 6, verse uh, 35. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then look at verse uh, uh, 35. I'm the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not hunger. The one who believes in me will not thirst. That's amazing. He says, hey, those guys got manna in the wilderness, speaking back to, regarding Moses in the past. He says they'd eat the manna, and then they'd get hungry again, and then they have to eat again, and then they eat again, and they eat again. He says, but if you come to me, I will provide for you. I will provide for you this profound satisfaction so that in a very real way, you will say it and mean it, I am enough. Now, I ought to tell you, that's missing in American culture because uh, the kind of ubiquitous idols, the idols that saturate our culture are idols of materialism. And the idols of materialism, to be blunt, are predicated on fostering in us a sense of discontent and a sense of comparison, right? And so we're always thinking that contentment is the next kind of next purchase away. 
But if we, can, if we can learn here that Christ is a source of satisfaction, it changes everything for us. Uh, when I, I, finished, I attended Talbot Seminary and then uh, left Los Angeles, uh, the only job available to me, or the one that opened up, was uh, an interim pastor of a small church on an island off the coast of Washington State. So it's a little teeny island, population 2,000, church of 35 people. And, they, and, I, and I came and I was the, I was the, I was the senior pastor. I was the, I was the only employee, right? And uh, not, not making much money, my wife and I left Los Angeles, we moved to this island. Uh, we moved in September. Our first child was born in October. Uh, we, we were living below the poverty line, and so we got free milk and free cheese. And within about a year, I was uh, quite discontent. Discontent, my calling as a pastor, I wanted to actually be a professor. Discontent with my income. Discontent with um, living on an island. And particularly of the three, living on the island was, the, for me, the hardest thing. People think, I mean, you only get there by a ferry, two-hour ferry ride. And people think that's romantic. I will tell you, it's not romantic for me in any way at all. I can't count how many times we would, be, we would miss the ferry. And then we'd have to wait four hours for another ferry. And then, and then when you're on the island, if you, if you want to do things that you enjoy, like skiing and stuff, you'd have to go the night before and stay in a motel which I couldn't really do on my income. And so I was just like, I started complaining about the, oh, this is stupid. And I, my wife, you ask her, she'd say, yeah, Richard, the first two years, man, those were dark. Like I'm complaining, complaining. Oh, this stupid island. Why are we living on, why do we have to live on an island? Why, what are we doing on an island? Why, and you know, who are these 35 people? Why are they, you know, church, church is growing, you know, we're building things, but I'm not happy. And then, you know, the, the last ferry would leave, 11 p.m., the fog thing, you know, and the horn would blow. And I'd say to my wife, that's it. That's the last ferry. We're stuck here. Like, we cannot leave this island until 6 in the morning. And she would be like this, do you need to leave? And i go, no, but the fact that I cannot leave. She finally, she goes, one day I was complaining, and she, she just looked at me, and she says, look, buddy, you got to get over this. You've got to start thanking God for what God has given you. And I had to, rep- I, did, I did, I had to repent, you know. And I will tell you, we lived there, ultimately we lived there seven years. Five of them, the last five, were the happiest years of our lives, right? <laughs> All of our kids were born on the island. We started loving, we started loving the life God had given us rather than wishing we were somewhere else. And then... Once I'd learned that lesson, I, had, I was preaching, actually, one Sunday on contentment, and a guy came to me. I was preaching on Philippians 4, where Paul says, I've learned to be content in any circumstance. Guy comes to me, and uh, he was visiting where I lived, Friday Harbor, if you know the Northwest. He was visiting Friday Harbor. And uh, he'd made his killing here in the Silicon Valley. And then uh, he was just up visiting his dad, who lived on the island. And when I preached on contentment, he came to me afterwards. I didn't know him. He introduced himself. He said, I have to meet with you this week. I will give you any amount of money if you'll meet with me this week. Here's the flesh in me. I go, 
any amount. <laughs> but then, you know, very quickly, I was like, no, 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 wait. Uh, yes, I'd be, I'd be delighted to meet with you. And so, so then we meet, and we meet at his dad's house, and he tells me a story. He made gobs of money, Silicon Valley, early part of the tech boom, late 80s, uh, retired at 36 years old. Uh, there was a woman in, uh, he was in love with. They were living together. Uh, he did, like, he, if you read Ecclesiastes 1, he did, he'd already done everything. He'd done everything. He said he used to gather with these wealthy people on Friday evenings in the Redwoods. They'd strip off all their clothing and drink wine and read Kant and Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and stuff like that. And they got involved in or, kind of orgy stuff. And he said, but the woman that I loved uh, left me for another woman. And then another friend became an addict, and then another friend who'd made all this money committed suicide, and he said, my world began to unravel, and he says, I'm here before you now, Richard, because when you preached yesterday on contentment, I would give everything I have for a moment of contentment. And I'm going to tell you, his story's not at all unusual. We live in a profoundly discontent culture because of our consumerism and our materialism, and here Jesus is making this kind of remarkable statement. He's saying, look, if you learn to feast on me, I will be for you a source of eternal satisfaction. Wow, that's amazing. So if I'm hungry for anything, sexual intimacy, meaning, material provision, contentment, authentic intimacy in my marriage, a community of friends, I'm hungry for anything, I want to turn to Christ, and however Christ meets that superficial hunger, however he meets that superficial hunger, here's the premise. God will use that hunger to bring me into intimacy with Christ himself, and that intimacy is the one thing that can never be taken away from me, that intimacy. And then, and then you know what? contentment. But here's what Jesus says. He says, you guys, uh, you think you're going to find contentment in me as your baker. Like, can I give you bread? Of course I can give you bread. But if that's all you want from me, you will never be satisfied. Can Christ fix your marriage? Of course he can. But if that's all you want, you'll never be satisfied. Can Christ give you a, a job? Yeah. But listen, your job will never be your source of satisfaction. So whatever it is that you're hungering for, go ahead and hunger, but take that hunger to Christ and allow Christ to so use that hunger that Christ himself becomes like the baseline source of satisfaction. And so what Jesus says here is you are kind of unwilling to come to me that you might have life. So I want you to turn to me. Uh, verse 53 says... Eat of me. Verse 56 says, continue to feast on me. Now, we're going to talk about how to do that tonight. But the reason he's saying that to these particular people is this, they don't want that. They, they want the food, but not the giver of the food. And so Jesus is saying in John 2, oh, yeah, you guys want a temple, but you don't want the builder of the temple. In John 5, this is what Jesus says in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. And though the scriptures point to me, you're unwilling to come to me. He's speaking to religious people. And he says, you want Bible studies. And you want, you want religion. And you want 
you know, forms and you want gatherings, but you don't want Christ. So you can want religion and not Christ. You can want the temple and not Christ. You can want upward mobility and not Christ. You can want justice and not Christ. You can want intimacy and not Christ. But the, the source of profound satisfaction is Christ. And so Jesus says, you have to eat of me. Why? Remember last night? You are what you eat. So you feast on Christ, who will you begin to look like? Christ. But if you don't feast on Christ, then you will remain in your own hidden idolatries. So when Jesus says this, here's the stunning thing. It says, from that moment on, verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples were not walking with him anymore. <laughs> so his disciples, his followers, as soon as he said, look, I, I'm not bringing an ideology I'm not, I'm not bringing a fix-it program. I'm not bringing a therapeutic culture that's just going to make you a better version of who you are. I'm calling you to nothing less than union with me. And wait, here's what that means. If I suffer, you suffer. If I die, you die. But if I rise, you rise. And so I have a life for you beyond what you could ask, hope, or even imagine, and you're settling for upward mobility. Don't do that. And so as a result, no, people were like this, yeah, yeah, we want the bread, but thanks, and then they left. And what's so stunning to me is <laughs> then Jesus uh, looks at the remaining disciples, the 12, and if I were Jesus, I would have said, oh, at least you guys are still here. Awesome. And then I probably would have diminished my message a little bit and made it a little easier, more palatable, so that I didn't lose them too. Because every leader likes a following, and 5,000 just left. <laughs> but he looks at the 12, and what does he say? Hey, you guys want to leave too? Stunning. It's funny when people talk about learning to lead like Jesus. I've never seen a leader do this <laughs> in a company, right? Well, if, and then Peter's answer is awesome. The Sunday school answer would be what? Oh, no, Jesus, you're amazing. You're the bee's knees, man. I mean, we, we think you're so cool. We would never leave you. But uh, Peter, in a moment of authentic transparency, what, what does he say? Uh, where are we going to go? What a great answer. Why is that a great answer? Because this is the response of someone who understands the profundity of Jesus' message. Yeah, you know what, Jesus, I understand. You're asking me to be yoked with you. And that means if, you, if there's a cross in your future, there's a cross in my future. That means if, if you're going to live a life of self-denial and service and turning the other cheek and laying down your weapons, you're calling me to do the same thing. And I'm not sure I want to do that, but here's the deal. Where else am I going to go? I've looked at upward mobility. I've looked at uh, uh, sexual indulgence. I've looked at Hinduism, I've looked east, I've looked west, I've looked north, I've looked south. Nothing satisfies. And then Jesus is like this, that's enough. That's all I need. And Peter's his man, as we'll see tomorrow morning. Do I always like the message? No. But where else are you going to go? And then as a result of that, when we, when we yoke ourselves with Christ, I'm just telling you this as your friend. When you yoke yourself with Jesus, here's what you find. 
profound contentment. Even if you're getting free cheese and milk. Profound contentment. We, uh, we just had a 40th anniversary celebration. I shared with you, it was our 40th anniversary a couple weeks ago. And so uh, my kids planned this thing and we went to a big cabin and we got kids and grandkids and we're all there, which was the best gift of all. But then a highlight of my life, one of the top 10 is going to be this. Uh, the, the night of our anniversary, the kids all gave speeches. My three kids gave speeches. And my son, whose faith is on the edge, I would say, he, he, he stands up to give his little speech and he just starts sobbing. And he says, um, he says, Dad, do you remember when I asked you about how to decide about getting married? And I was like, I do, man. Remember that ski day? It was good. He said, well, I've always known that God is the source of your decision-making. And he says, I've watched you now for all these years. And there's no, he said, this is what he said, there's nothing I want more than to follow in those, those steps. I want to make decisions that same way. And he's, he's just weeping. And then my daughter stood up and she said, she said, uh, when we look back on our childhood, Dad, when we lived on the island, we didn't know that we had free milk and cheese. We didn't even know that motels existed because vacations were always camping. And then she's crying, and she says, but you know what? We felt like we were kings and queens. We were so happy with so little. And then my daughter says, thank you for teaching me to be content with what God gives us. Well, how could we not be content if what we have is union with the creator of the universe? That's where God's taken us. So what is your hunger this morning? Sex, upward mobility, vocational success, great marriage, kids who love Jesus? Doesn't matter what your hunger is, if you take that hunger to Christ... Jesus will not only meet the need in Jesus' way, whatever that way is, but he'll point you to the deeper source of satisfaction, Christ. And then you will say with Peter, where else are we going to go? You are the source of satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for hunger this morning. Thanks for physical hunger. Uh, we will eat soon again, <laughs> and that's fine. We'll be hungry. Thank you for the way you've made that. Whatever is our hunger this morning, beyond hunger for food, Father, would you help us to be in touch with that hunger and then turn to you with that hunger, knowing that what awaits us on the far side of that encounter is an invitation to union with you and satisfaction from you. Thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.